0: Now, our Holy Father, we love you and we thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts and your ways above ours. And so we need to have our minds renewed through your word. And so we thank you for it tonight that you address every subject of life and where we often meet the road is with our finances. And so we pray that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. So bless our study here tonight, be with us, and uh, speak to us, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in section one on stewardship, so let me just briefly review to tell you where we are at. Some of our objectives as we're talking about what tithing is, what it means to give in secret, uh, what are the results of giving, What's a biblical plan for giving? Where should I give? Uh, we'll deal some briefly with prosperity, prosperity theology. We started Roman number one on page 14, a biblical theology for giving. And we saw that it starts with God. The very first thing God does is He gives. He gives to us. He gives us life out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into us the breath of life. And so that's why we start this course on giving. He not only created us physically, he gave us the opportunity to know him. And through sin, he recreates us in Christ. He makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We saw also man's first recorded gift in the Bible, and it was based on what God had done for us. So Abel's response was in light of God's goodness to him and the forgiveness that he uh, provided. Abel still preaches or speaks to this day, the writer of the Hebrews says, Well, how does he speak? Well, among other things, he tells us that we don't give as we think we should give. We give based on what God has revealed. And that's why Abel's gift was acceptable, because he gave on the basis of what God had revealed, and Cain gave on what he thought. In Cain, when a summary of his life is given in the New Testament, the Bible says, Cain was of the evil one. And not only did he give as God revealed, he gave his best. He didn't give his leftovers, he gave his best to God. So there were some timeless lessons. Then in Roman numeral 2, which began on page 17, uh, we talked about that God's vehicle to support his work is through the tithe. And uh, we talked about that tithing, the word tithe in Hebrew and Greek, even if you don't know those two languages, all you have to do is read the passages because they're defined within the passages, that a tithe literally means a tenth. And so we saw Abram, who gave to Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. We've been answering the question, does tithing apply for today? Some people say, well, it's just an Old Testament right that it's just for Israel, and since it's not commanded in the epistles of the New Testament, that we don't need to do it. Well, neither is baptism commanded in the epistles in the New Testament not once. Now, spirit baptism is spoken about. I think water baptism is maybe assumed in at least one text, but it's never commanded. Only in the Gospels. Does that mean we would not follow it because it's not commanded? Of course not. In fact, God only has to say something once for it to be true. The epistles never once address the subject of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, yet Jesus said that's a sin that can be never forgiven. The laws of incest, that are found in the book of Leviticus never once appear anywhere in the New Testament. Does that mean that you should marry your first cousin? I think not. Bestiality is never addressed in the New Testament. God addressed it under the Mosaic law. Still applies. Why? Because it's part of God's moral, eternal law. And so we looked at some principles on how to distinguish between what we might call ceremonial law and the moral, eternal law of God. And certainly if there's a clear plain statement in the New Testament overruling a particular practice, then it's clearly part of God's ceremonial law. So maybe you had bacon and eggs for breakfast, no Jew would because bacon would be considered unclean. Maybe you had shrimp for dinner, no Jewish person would because that would be an unclean food. But God ruled under the new covenant, all meats, all foods are declared clean. The only prohibition is in Acts 15, the drinking of blood, because the sacredness of blood and all that it represents. Um, And much of the ceremonial law was picturing what God was going to fulfill in Christ. So none of you bring us animal sacrifice to church. Why? Because of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Then we began to explore this subject over, it's a small minority, maybe 25% of those who speak against tithing, say the tithe was not 10%, but 13% and 23%. And we could spend a whole lesson on that, but we spent quite a bit of time on it. And we looked at the passages that are used to justify that. And we saw that those passages are not teaching that at all, that uh, the second tithe that God commanded uh, was a tithe that is being given in a different way. It was not an additional tithe. And on the third year, how the tithe was regulated in a different fashion. So, we looked at those texts. But sometimes people will speak to the Christian who says, well, I tithe, and I believe I should. And they'll say, well, do you really tithe? Do you give 13%? Do you give 23%? And they almost try to discourage you in not tithing, and that's not a good thing. So, uh, we saw that tithing was something that was practiced before the law. Tithing is something that was practiced, we'll see, during the law. Um, Nehemiah commanded it. Uh, Moses spoke of it. So, it's commanded during the time of the law, and we'll see before we're finished that Jesus also affirms the practice after the law. So we're on page 23 and let me just kind of walk through. The answers are filled in for 23 for you. I wrote in the answers so that you, if you didn't bring on that page, um, let's just start so we have a flow of where we're going. For those who say that to tithe today is to be legalistic, they must remember that tithing is not part of God's ceremonial law, but God's eternal law. And by the way, that is why for 1900 years of church history, no one debated tithing. C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Study Bible said it had no application for today. Schofield was wrong. Schofield was wrong in a lot of things. He was right in a lot of things, but he was wrong in a lot of things too. And uh, he really popularized the notion that it was only a practice to be done under the law and not for God's people today. Um, but it's part of God's eternal law. Remember, tithing was practiced, point three there, 400 years before the Mosaic law, as seen in Genesis 14. If you remember, in Genesis 14, Abraham gives a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek, the priest and king. And we learned from Hebrews 7, if you remember, we read this text, that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Tupos is a Greek word in the New Testament that is an old, used to describe, an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. And there are many Old Testament types even in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Uh, Look at one there. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ, Melchizedek was, uh, was able to serve as both a priest and a king. So he illustrates Christ in that respect. Just like Christ, he represented peace and righteousness. That's what his name means, if you remember. As seen in the translation of his name and as seen in the work of Christ's cross. Though he was a man with a beginning and an end, genealogically speaking, he had no beginning or end. And so if you look at the text that's printed out there, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then Also king of Salem, Shalom, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So three there, I know he was a man without a beginning and end, genealogically speaking. No beginning or end is recorded, and so in that sense, he typifies the Lord Jesus who had no beginning or end. He just pops onto the page of Scripture. You don't know who his dad was, his granddad, who his kids are, and so in that way, he is a type of Christ. Genealogically speaking, with Aaron's descendants, we have a movie picture, but by design and respect to the biblical record without father and mother, Melchizedek, uh, by his life, God gave us a snapshot. From our viewpoint, he always is a priest because we do not see his induction, and we do not see him when he is too old to function as a priest. He is always a priest, and so by type he is like Christ. The point in this is that when Abraham gave a tenth to one uh, who pictured Christ, he is giving to Christ. Now, I mentioned to you some would take Melchizedek as one of the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. There are a number of occasions where the Lord Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. No ordinary angel, angelai. Um, Malek in Hebrew, a messenger is what the word means. Jesus was no ordinary angel. He was God. But he would appear on occasion in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord prior to Bethlehem. You never see the angel of the Lord after Bethlehem. And if that's a new concept to you and you've not studied that, you might want to uh, take the course in angelology in the Institute. But whether this was a pre-incarnate picture of Christ, which I don't think it was, but even if it was, it changes nothing. Whether this was a literal, physical appearance of Christ or one who is an illustration of Christ, Nonetheless, Abraham is giving to Christ. That's why the Lord could say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. He saw it in his encounter with Melchizedek. He saw Christ as a type there on top of Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the temple mount today. It's the most important piece of land on the face of the earth and the most disputed piece of property on the face of the earth. God brought about salvation history on Mount Moriah, and he will finish salvation history on that same physical location. It was there, of course, that David stopped the plague. He bought it from uh, a man who wanted to give it to him for free, Arona, and he said, no, I don't want it for free. It won't mean anything to me. If you you just give it to me, I, I want to buy it. And he bought it, and he did what God said, and God stopped the plague. And it was that same place, Second Chronicles tells us, that Solomon built the temple. Solomon's temple was ultimately torn down, destroyed. A second temple was put up. And it's on the mountains of Moriah that the Lord Jesus, of course, is crucified. And it will be during the millennial reign of the Messiah from the Temple Mount that Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. So Abraham... Saw a type of Christ, he saw my day, he rejoiced and was glad. So when Abram, which was really technically his name at this point, though you can call him Abraham because Stephen does and the writer of the Hebrew does before his name is changed, so that's all right. When Abram gave a tenth, whether one thinks he was giving to a pre incarnate Christ or one who pictured Christ, in either case, he was giving to Christ some 400 years before the law. All right, let's blaze some new material here. In addition, it is recorded in Genesis 28:22 that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, also tithed hundreds of years before the law was given. Now to appreciate what he was doing and why he was doing it, we need to go back and set the context. So I couldn't print out all the scripture. so take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis and uh, go, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 25. Let me just set it up. The Old Testament talks about somebody is coming. The New Testament speaks about the fact that someone has come. And the revelation, what we're studying now on Sunday morning, someone is coming. And so the Lord Jesus is pictured here in these Old Testament passages. And this is an important passage because, like Abraham was giving to a type of Christ, so was Jacob, as we will see here in just a moment. Now, if you remember, Abram had a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers, but they were a very different kind of man. Esau was a babalos, the writer of the Hebrews says. He was an evil man. He was a profane person. He had really no place and no time for God. There are millions of people across our nation who are like that today. Sunday comes. They could care less. It's just a day to sleep in. They're living profane lives. So Esau, if you remember in Genesis chapter 25, he was the eldest son, and so he had the right to the birthright. But of course, he spurned it for a a bowl of stew, and he valued the temporal over that of the eternal. And so in Genesis 25, you witness how he sells it to Jacob. And of course, he is like a lot of people today who love the world. And God tells us not to love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away, but if we do the will of God, then we're really living in things that really matter. Then here in Genesis 26, he sells his birthright. uh, for a, bo- a bowl of soup in, uh, in 25, and then he, he gives up the blessing in, in chapter 27. So there's the birthright and there's the blessing, and I have whole sermons on that. Look at Genesis 27, verse 41. When he realizes what has happened, it says Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. Uh, the King James renders it, if I remember, Esau hated Jacob, bore a grudge. But it's not just, you know, a light grudge. There's real hatred in it. So the King James is bringing that out. But it's an ongoing grudge. So the NA, ongoing hatred, so the NAS uses the term grudge. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. He purposed in his heart, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to wait until dad dies. We'll bury daddy, and then I'm going to bury you. That was the spirit in his heart. He was just filled with hate. Look at verse 42. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. She's afraid. She's fearful for this Young boy who she seemingly had a special affection for, maybe too much in terms of favoring him. We'll cover that when we come to parenting 102 in the fall during the Institute, uh, during the uh, CBC University, 43, now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. If you remember, those few days turning into 20 years, right? You remember that whole process of how he got his brides. Verse 46, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Hef, she says. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Hef, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she's convincing Isaac, let the boy go. One son has already made a disastrous mistake Esau married two heathen women. And Rebekah said that brought grief to my soul. Any parent who's been down that road, if your child's a believer and they marry an unbeliever, it just brings a grief to your soul. And so needing to flee the wrath of his brother, at the same time needing a wife, that brings us here to Genesis 28. Look at verse 7 of chapter 28. It says, in that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padam Aram. I mean, he got out of Dodge and he left. He knew that the threat that Esau had on his life was not a phony threat. It was a real threat. And he left. And the text tells us that uh, he went a long way. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 11. He came, it's printed out now on your handout, he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And of course, that certain place was 50 miles away. He did that in one day. Now, it's one thing to do 30 miles in a day. It's incredible to do 50 but sometimes when fear is driving you, you will do something, you will run. I remember when I was just a little boy, I was nine years old, and I used to walk the neighbor's dog every day. And the guy would, Uncle Joe, we called him, he wasn't my uncle, but we called him Uncle Joe, and he would give me two quarters every single day. And it was one winter night, it was dark, it was pitch black, not many street lights. And this guy in a 1962 saw began to follow me. And I turned right, and he turned right. I turned left, and he turned left. My heart started beating, and then he stopped his car, and I ran like fire. I ran a half a mile in no time at all to the next house, and I banged on that door. And as it turned out, that guy was a pervert. But fear will drive you, and he was driven by fear. He came to a certain place, spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. How many of you sleep with a pillow? Anybody not sleep with a pillow? Yeah, no, I don't see any hands. You know, there's something about a pillow, it's nice. Now my brother-in-law travels a lot and when he travels, he always puts his pillow in his suitcase, that's how dedicated he is to his pillow. <laughs> He's tired. So what does he use for a pillow? A rock. Here's an old pillow head. He uses a rock for a pillow. You know you're desperate. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil. He set it apart with oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. L. whenever you see a word in English in the Old Testament ending in El, it's a form of God, right? El is one of the names for God. Bethel, house of God. However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God, this stone. And by the way, that's conditioned um, like in Greek. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Satan wasn't questioning whether or not Jesus was the son of God. He knew he was. Uh, you wouldn't, Satan wouldn't tempt me to turn stones into bread, why, because I can't do it. But Jesus could. And so Jacob is giving an affirmation that God is going to take care of him. And so then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So let me make some observations. On this occasion, Jacob had a dream, but it was no ordinary dream. Because in the dream, he received a direct revelation from God. God spoke in many portions and in many ways, the writer of the Hebrews says. And as the Bible was being written, sometimes God gave dreams. And he gave direct revelation to his servants. Now, when someone comes to me and says, I have a dream, and God told me to, i pretty shaky ground, typically folks are on. We have a completed canon of Scripture. I'm not saying it's not impossible for God to give a dream, I heard of a particular Muslim guy who walked three days in India. Most people are Hindus in in India, about 10% are are Muslims. He walked three days because God had given him a dream to go to the city and there he saw the Jesus film and was saved. So I believe God could do that, but God's typical way of communicating is not through dreams, it's through his word because we have a completed canon and any dream that someone has to have today, it cannot add or subtract to scripture because the will of God never, ever goes against the Word of God. Before the canon of Scripture was completed and on many occasions, God chose to give direct revelation to some of His people by means of a dream. Today, with the completion of the Bible, God's primary way for revealing His will is through the indwelling Spirit and through the counsel of Scripture. It was on this night that Jacob came to know God personally, or in New Testament terminology, we would say he was born again. When in verse 18, Jacob took his pillow and poured oil on it, he was consecrating it to the Lord, making it a memorial to God out of gratitude, for God opened his heart up in this dream. God opened his heart up in the dream. He renamed the place from Luz, which is a Hebrew word that means separation, to Bethel, a Hebrew word meaning house of God. This man was converted. Where? At Jacob's ladder. Turn there. It's not printed out. Maybe I should have. Go to John chapter 1 for a moment. John chapter 1. Remember the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus said, speak of me, he told the Pharisees. On the Emmaus Road, he told those disciples. He opened the Scriptures and he proved from the law and the Psalms and the prophets that he was the Messiah. John chapter 1, it's that process where Jesus is selecting some of his disciples, and if you look in verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. There's two Bethsaidas in the Bible, one on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, one on the west side right near Capernaum, that's where they're at, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel asked the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, some people think that that was a crummy question he asked. But it was probably a very sincere question because he understood the scriptures and he knew that Messiah would be born where? Yeah, Bethlehem. That's what the prophets wrote of. So what do you mean Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no guile. Now, you probably know when I go to Israel and I'm with a Jewish tour guide, the Jewish tour guide has a Hebrew New Testament. And so he reads his New Testament, not in English typically, but he reads it in Hebrew because that's his native tongue. And in Hebrew, it's very interesting how they translate this word deceit. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Yaakov, in whom there is no Jacob. Remember what Jacob meant? Conniver, deceiver, rip-off artist, I suppose you could say. And God renames him Yitzrael, Israel. And of course, that becomes the progenitor name for the whole nation through his 12 sons. Behold an Israelite in whom there's no Jacob, no deceit, no, no guile. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Whoa. He knew that Jesus was omniscient. That Jesus saw him without ever knowing where he was and having been there himself. He knew it because he knew everything. And by the way, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven if we find out that Nathanael was reading Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. In either case, or maybe better, God's ladder. I saw you, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree do you believe, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. Now, we just read from Genesis 28, a ladder that went from earth up into heaven, and the angels are going up and down the ladder. And Jesus is claiming in this text that he is that ladder. You know, kids saying, we are climbing Jacob's ladder, uh, every rung uh, higher, higher, but it's not really Jacob's ladder. It's God's ladder. And Jesus is that ladder. What I'm wanting you to see is that this man is converted. He, in New Testament terminology, is born again. He's able to connect the dots. And sometimes we write off Old Testament saints like they're stupid and they don't have much revelation and they don't understand much. They understood a whole lot more than we realize. Remember, we studied it when we looked at Abel. He's a prophet of God. We don't know that from the Old Testament, but the New Testament reveals he's a prophet. And we studied from Acts chapter 10 that all of the prophets preached Christ. All of the prophets. Jesus said the first prophet was Abel, the last prophet was Zechariah. And all of the prophets preached Messiah. So they understood a whole lot more than we do. And he connects the dots. Jacob does. Verse, number 15 This man was converted at Jacob's ladder, and in response, verse 22 indicated he gave a tenth or a tithe of all that he owned. This is now the second mention of tithing in the entire Bible. Remember, this is still before God gave the command through Moses. Law hadn't yet been given. The law comes 430 years after Abraham, but they're tithing. Here's Jacob, out of an intense gratitude for his salvation, giving a freewill offering to the Lord. And really, he's giving a freewill offering to a type of Christ because the latter represents the Lord Jesus. Turn the page 18. Jacob didn't get saved, of course, because he gave. He is giving because he got saved. For the Lord Jesus taught this in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be Also. Up until this time, his motto had been to get, right? That's what he was all about. If you've read the story in Genesis, he's a getter. But something has happened to him where he moves from a spirit of getting to a spirit of giving. And that's what happens when God gets a person's heart. His heart is turned around. Just like Zacchaeus, remember him in Luke 19. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Again, he's not saved by giving, but his changed life because that's what happens when you're born again. You're a new creature. Your life changes, and if it doesn't change, it just means you've never been born again. So everything changed for that man. So number 21, we need to ask, why did Abraham and Jacob give 10%? Why not 2% or 4% or 6% or even 100% to God's work? It is inconceivable for me to believe that Abraham, who is not only called the friend of God in both the Old and the New Testaments, but the father of the faithful did not consult God on this matter. I mean, if he's the father of the faithful and the friend of God, and he's seeking the living God. Remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing God's Word, right? Romans 10, 17. Of course, in Abraham's day, there was no written word to consult, but God to selected servants would give direct revelation, and I have no doubt that God gave him definite instructions. That's why he gave a tenth. He didn't just pick a number out of the air. It wasn't some pagan practice. God had revealed it to him. He's the father of the faithful. He lived by faith. That's what this man is commended for, his faith, his believing what God has revealed because that faith is always based on the Word of God. No one has ever had faith apart from the Word of God. No one in any age, even before the Bible was written, God would give a word through a dream, a revelation, but man's faith is always based on God's word. Number 25, so tithing is practiced before the law, and as you would expect, since it's part of God's eternal law beyond Moses, tithing was also taught during the time of the law by Malachi, Nehemiah, and so forth. So let's ask the question, point E there on your outline, did Jesus ever say anything about tithing? Did Jesus ever say anything about tithing? Tithing was also taught after the Old Testament law by Christ himself. If you remember on one occasion when Jesus was having lunch with a Pharisee, some other Pharisees were upset with Jesus because he did not follow their customs. And so he rebuked them with a series of woes. And here's one in Luke's Gospel, different from the occasion in Matthew 23 in the final week of his life, but in Luke eleven forty-two, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. On a different occasion, turn the page, 26, on a different occasion when Jesus gave his most scathing address to the scribes and Pharisees. Again, since this was so permeating their lifestyle, you would expect that he would address the issue more than once, which he did, which he did with a number of issues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, spices, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. Understanding that in Christ's teaching, there's no competition. There's no competition between tithing and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Tithing along with showing justice, mercy and faithfulness are all a part of what God expects us to do. He said these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Let's ask another question. Is tithing contrary to motivating people by grace? Is tithing contrary to motivating people by grace? There is no biblical basis for saying that giving a tithe to God's work is contrary to the principle of grace. In fact, it's the grace of God, the grace of God alone that should motivate us in everything that we do, right? Titus 2, you know that text and Really, everything you do should be motivated by God's grace. We don't do to earn approval. We do because we are approved. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can't improve the righteousness that God imputed to you the moment you believed. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned. Justification is more on the positive side. God imputes righteousness to you just as if you had perfectly obeyed. And so Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The death of Christ was not for a select few. We have our limited redemptionists today. They believe in what's called a particular atonement. That means they don't believe Jesus died for all. I think John Piper's wrong. I can look at anyone in the face and say, Christ died for you. He loves you. He shed his innocent, sinless blood for you. The grace of God has appeared to all men, but the next verse says, instructing us, us who? Us believers who have received that grace. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He'll go on in the next chapter and he'll remind us, For we also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to different lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and love for for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness. Not on the basis of anything you've done, but according to his mercy. Look, everything we do is based on the grace of God. We are to burn, let that be burned into our soul. There is no biblical basis for saying that giving a tithe to God's work is contrary to the principle of grace. The grace of God alone should motivate us. Paul will write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." He's talking, of course, in the spiritual realm. Now, the prosperity theologians like Joel Olstein and many others, they use this verse way out of context. You listen to that guy preach and I cringe. I'd listen to Perry Noble preach and I would cringe. i say he is using verses so far out of context to manipulate the Bible and make it mean whatever he wanted it to mean. Jesus became poor in that he emptied himself of all the splendor and glory that he enjoyed in, in heaven with the Father. And he took on our humanity without ever divesting himself of his deity. He humbled himself by becoming a man, and even to the point of death on a cross. Why? So that his through his poverty we might become rich spiritually, not rich financially. God may make you rich financially. Some of his choicest servants in the Bible are very wealthy people. But that's not the goal of the the cross. As you study the teaching of Christ in the Gospels, it is very clear that Jesus never revised the law downward, but upward, upward. The Lord said this in the Sermon on the Mount, you know the text, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say to him, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In the most famous sermon, without altering God's standards, Jesus dealt with the attitudes and intents of the heart and not simply with the external action such as anger, not simply with the external action, such that anger can be executed both physically and in the heart. It can express itself with a knife through a chest or through piercing, hateful, mean, ugly words. In the same sermon and revising again the law upward, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, which the Pharisee said, that's me, man. I don't commit adultery. I've never cheated on my wife. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Not committing adultery physically is still God's standard, but Jesus elevated it higher. Which, by the way, the key verse in the whole Sermon on the Mount is, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. They had an external righteousness by which they could claim innocence. But they were like dead men's bones on the inside, fallen just like all of us. Equally, it is still a sin to rob God by not tithing. For Jesus never said in the Old Testament, It said not to steal, but I say steal a little. Clearly, the tithe is the starting place for the child of God. What is the New Testament believer's relationship to the law? Let's ask that question. What is our relationship to the Old Testament law? Another New Testament passage that establishes the application of tithing for today is found in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul gives a very clear and precise discourse that we cannot save ourselves, but we are saved by the grace of God provided through the death and resurrection of His Son. Having established that principle, he goes on to tell us in Romans 3.31, we, do we then nullify the law through faith? He has just said, look, we can't be saved by keeping the law. Well, do we nullify the law through faith? Do we make God's law meaningless? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul is asking, is the Old Testament law eradicated because we are under grace? And his answer is, of course, simply no. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish God's law. Consider the following illustration. Can a murderer sentenced to death work for his freedom? No, because he's under the law, law of man in this case, and the law demands death. The only way he can be set free is if the governor gives him a pardon. So in waiting for the execution, this man would truly be under the law in every sense of the word. He would be under the guilt and under the condemnation and under the sentence of death. But if just before his execution date, suppose the governor reviews the condemned man's case and decides to pardon him. In the light of extenuating circumstances, he then decides to exercise his prerogative, as governor, and he sends a full pardon to the prisoner. Now the prisoner is no longer under the law, but under grace. That is, the law no longer condemns him, such that he is considered totally justified as far as the charges of the law are concerned. He is now free to walk out of the prison, and no officer of the law can stop him. However, one must ask, now that he is... Under grace and not law, can we say that he is free to break the law? Of course not. In fact, he would now be doubly obligated to obey the law because he has found grace from the governor. Out of gratitude and out of love, he hopefully would be very careful to honor and obey the law of the land which granted him grace. I I thought that, uh, I can't remember her name, that African-American lady that Trump pardoned and um, uh, some movie star went to bat for her. And when she got out of jail, she said, Mr. President, I will never disappoint you for the decision that you've made in freeing me. She was supposed to spend the rest of her life there, but he freed her. Now she wrote a book on it. I, I saw her interview the other day. So number six, that's a side. <laughs> when the Bible tells us in Romans six fourteen, Romans chapter 6, colon 14, if you're new, six is the chapter number, colon, then the verse number, we are not under law but under grace. That's what 6.14 says, we're not under law, but under grace. So when the Bible tells us we're not under law, but under grace, it is not teaching that we can ignore God's moral commands. In fact, immediately after stating we are not under law, but under grace, which by the way is a verse people quote all the time to say, we don't have to tithe, we're not under law, we're under grace. Immediately after Paul states that, in anticipation of some who would misconstrue his words to mean that you can break the law because you're under grace. He says, what then? Simply meaning, how, how are we to understand this? And notice his answer. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Being under grace does not give a license to break God's moral law. And since tithing was practiced by the father of the faithful some 400-plus years before the law, it has never been a part of the ceremonial law but God's moral law. No one has ever been under the law as a means of justifying himself, for the Bible presents only one perfect plan for everyone to be saved— That is by grace through faith, period. God didn't have one way of salvation for the Old Testament saints and a different way for us. Anyone you meet in heaven will be there by the Lord Jesus. Now, some of them did not know, obviously, the Messiah's name would be Yeshua. God didn't reveal that name until he revealed it to Joseph and Mary. But they will be there because of their faith in the Messiah that they were looking forward to. Remember that uh, scribe, I think it's Luke 10 and... He says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? What does the Scripture say? He asks the question, and Jesus comes back with two questions. (laughs) The whole answer is right there in the Bible. Now, that guy was trying to trap Jesus, test Jesus. Jesus just points him back to the Bible. Jesus didn't have a different way later in his ministry. It was the same way all the time, and it's through him alone. When we get to heaven, it will not be divided into two parts, those who are there by works and those who arrive there by grace through faith. Every single redeemed person will be a sinner saved by grace, redeemed only by the blood of the Lamb. Because as Hebrews 10:4 states, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrificial system with its holy feasts, new moon festivals, and special Sabbath days, such as Passover, all pointed forward to the work of the cross. Remember Paul here in Colossians chapter 2. He reminds us, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, it's before we were saved, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Remember, this is one of the prison epistles, as we call them. Paul's under house arrest. And outside of the door of any Roman cell or a house arrest situation would be a certificate of debt. And on it was the crime that was listed. And until that payment was made for that crime, you were obligated to the Roman government. And so he tells us here that Christ removed their certificate of debt, which was hostile to us. Why was it hostile to us? Because God said, you shall not steal, and you stole. You shall not commit adultery, and you've lost it, and so on. We've broken the Ten Commandments. We've broken the law of God. He removed their certificate of debt, which was hostile to us. And how did he cancel out? He nailed it to the cross. By the way, there's one ancient certificate of debt that has been found. It was written on animal skin, And with the Roman seal and inscribed in it was the word tetelestai. It's the same word Jesus shouted from the cross. It is finished. It's the same word that some ancient tax-collecting instruments that were located in the city of Jerusalem in 1961 were written next to every name when their tax was paid, tetelestai paid in full, he removed our certificate of debt, and he nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the ceremonial law, number 13, looked forward in faith to the atoning death of Christ of Jesus. We, on the other hand, look back in faith to the same death and are saved in exactly the same way, and in heaven we will all sing the same song the same del- of the same deliverance. One cannot be biblically accurate in saying, I am not going to tithe. I'm going to do my own thing because I am under grace, not law. Let's do one more page, I think. If any conclusions can be made, we who have the full revelation of God and Jesus have a greater motivation. We have a greater motivation than any Old Testament saint have. Why? Because we have the full revelation. They had it. In fact, they wrote it. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, after they wrote it, these guys were so inspired, they had to go back and then study it to see who it was referring to. We've got the whole picture. Tithing was taught before the law, tithing was taught during the law, and tithing was taught after the law because it's part of God's eternal law. So, before someone just says, Well, you don't have to tithe anymore, that's just for the nation of Israel, you don't have to do that, you're going one against 1900 years of church history. You're going against every church father who wrote that tithing was applicable, you're going against every Protestant reformer who said tithing was applicable. And we need to be careful before we quickly dismiss tithing. For Jesus said, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Romans 8, 3 and 4 helps us to see the balance between law and grace. It gives us a picture of the balance. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh. It couldn't save you because you couldn't keep it perfectly. What the law could not do weak as it was through your fallen sinful nature, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that, here's the reason, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Verse 4 is very important because it teaches us major truths about our walk with the Lord as it relates to the purpose of Christ's death. Verse four indicates that the ultimate reason that God became a man and died for you was not simply so that you would not be condemned to hell, but that you might for his glory become Christ-like, become like Christ. That's what he's doing. He's he's conforming us to the image of his son. God works all things together for good, Paul says in Romans eight. How so? He's conforming you to the image of His Son. That's why He's doing it. Simply stated that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul teaches us in this verse that our walk consists in holy living. And that is critical because many Christians today measure their spirituality by the experiences they have or by the feelings they get. That's the secret church. That's Hillsong. That's Bethel. Bethel. That's the Apostolic Reform Movement. That's Perry Noble. That's Joe Olstein. That's T.D. Jakes. That's all these guys. It's all feeling oriented. We're here to create a feeling for you. That's stinking, rotten theology. Many Christians are quick to tell you about how God spoke to them, or about some dream they had, or some ecstatic utterance they verbalized, or some feeling they experienced. And in this day of experience-oriented Christianity, we need to hear how, how it is that God defines holiness. When God defines the Christian walk and true spirituality, he defines it as the requirements of the law being fulfilled in us. When God looks at his moral law, he expects us to obey it, but not in our strength, but in the power of the Spirit. Let's finish 25 and 26. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Please note, those two little words, in us, because the requirement of the law is not fulfilled by us, but in us. And in God's economy, there is a big, big difference. You see, because God, Christ justifies us, The Spirit now indwells us. We sang in one song about the precious blood of Christ. Then in the next song, we sang about living water tonight. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit now indwells us such that Paul can teach that we are no longer to live according to the flesh, but as verse 4 says, according to the Spirit. All right. Let's pray, and Ed, you'll come down. Father, we love you. We thank you. We too were once foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various loss and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when your kindness appeared through our Savior, we bless you that he saved us, not on the basis of what we've done, but according to his great mercy Thank you that he washed us white as snow and he renewed us on the inside by the Spirit. I I pray today if someone tonight doesn't know what that means, that they would ask someone to help them, that they would come to meet the pastor, that they would get this settled in their mind and heart for eternity. Thank you, Father, that we don't give in order to be saved, but because you have saved us. It is on that basis that we give. And we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.